You're listening to Festival Grass. A podcast diving into the business and culture of the music festival world. With your hosts, Mario. And Shanae. Well, welcome everybody to the newscast in this week's edition. Insomniac cancels the remaining 2020 events. With Burning Man canceled, Reno's symbolic end to summer, a major cash cow is gone. Taiwan hosts first 10,000-person arena show post-COVID. Burning Man documentary director hopes film will be a tribute to festival founder. New documentary, Underplayed, to underscore lack of female inclusivity in dance music. Six things about festival season we never thought we'd miss. An update on diversity and radical inclusion by Burning Man Project. But first up, a permanent pill testing site will be placed in Civic this summer, Australia, as part of a commitment that builds on the pill testing trials at music festivals. ATC Greens leader Shane Rattenbury says this commitment will see a regular weekend service in the city that will be informed by expert health advice. The reality is, he is quoted as saying, people don't just take pills at music festivals. A routine pill testing site will continue to build on the success of previous pill testing trials at music festivals here in the ACT and help keep more young lives safe. This decision today means that over the coming summer, as we look to potentially eased restrictions, we'll be able to provide more support so that the young people can experience less harm as a result of recreational drug use. Now, we're wondering here why he mentions it becoming a regular service. It was because pill testing made headlines back in 2018 over the death of five young people in about four months at festivals. And the first legal pill testing program was then run at Canberra's Grooving the Moo Festival in April of 2018. 18. And the way that it worked is that the testing facility was located next to the medical tent with a common entryway, which obscured whether someone turned towards the medical or the pill testing facilities. Each side was also obscured from the rest of the festival grounds to ensure privacy. And after signing a disclaimer, which reinforced that the results did not show the drugs were safe and filling out a short pre-test survey, attendees would put a sample of their drugs onto a sheet where a chemist then scraped them off and tested them. Any unused sample was disposed of by the chemist into a locked bin containing bleach. At no point during the test were any drugs returned to the attendees. Now, while the testing was being carried out, the people waiting had a conversation with an alcohol and other drug counselor, also called an AOD counselor. And when the testing was completed, the results then appeared on a screen attached to the testing equipment. And a chemist and a medical clinician would then explain the results to the attendees. At Shambhala, Ancors provides a very, very similar process uh, for testing drugs there that is completely free and supported by the festival and provides a well-executed example of harm reduction. But in Australia, they're taking it a step further where they're actually making this harm reduction pill testing a permanent part of the area where these music festivals uh, occur. What do you think about all of this? Yeah, I think it's a really, really good effort. Um, I think that, like I've mentioned before, if people are going to do drugs, they're going to do them. And 
and saying it's not allowed isn't really going to stop them. So let's provide them with the safest ways to do it. And this is definitely a step in the right direction. The interesting thing is here that overall at Grooving the Moo, 125 people attended the pill testing site and 85 samples were tested. Now, in my opinion, having been to many music festivals, that is a bit low. I remember at Shambhala, uh, there were lineups every day at least 85 people in those lineups per day, minimum at all times. So I'm wondering uh, whether there weren't enough people taking up these services uh, or whether they were scared or whether they've misunderstood that there was this amnesty thing where you're not really in trouble if you go get your drugs tested. I wonder what all of that is about. Yeah, um, I think, well, one, I just want to touch on the point of the counselors. I think they're there as outreach workers, I would assume. So then people who are doing drugs know that they have resources if they ever need help and then just also learn about safe drug practices. But in terms of the numbers, I think, yeah, I think it's just going to take time for people to be comfortable going because yeah, drugs are still illegal and maybe they feel like it could just be a ploy to get them in trouble and so they'll slowly start to realize, no, we're there, they're there to help you. And this is a super important thing that people should start acting on. From the attendees that were surveyed about their experiences, the results showed that they were surprised most of the time by their results. Included questions in the survey were whether the results had changed their intentions around taking drugs at the festival. 42% of the attendees answered that their drug consumption behavior would change, would change as a result of the testing. And the statement goes on to say, anyone who possessed quantities of drugs which were deemed trafficable, that is someone likely to be a dealer, were to be refused the service. However, there were no reported cases of that. Insomniac cancels the rest of their 2020 events. Pasquella Rotella now states that all of their fall festivals will also be postponed. It's a disappointing and necessary decision. They're providing refunds and rollover options to all of their attendees, and they're holding their fans' experiences as high as they can. Since the beginning of COVID, Insomniac has put on virtual versions of their canceled events, and they're also now supporting the Drive-In Rave series to make adjustments without a festival season as comfortable as possible. So I think they're ahead of the curve in terms of still being able to provide entertainment to their fan base, but they were a little bit behind and not willing to cancel their events from the start because I think they were just holding on to the hope that, no, by the fall, things will look better. And they're realizing that in the States, that's not the case. Follow your social distance rules until then. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I guess you can't blame them for dragging their heels. I will say that by contrast to other promoters, Insomniac is stated as saying, I mean, we, we can argue whether this is in contrast, honestly, but um, they are stated as saying that they place a larger emphasis on fan experiences as opposed to focusing on profits and ticket sales. And that, quote, our strength lies in the movement as a whole. It's a culture. It's powerful. It's always been about the people that attend. It changes people's lives. This is Rotella quoted there. And he contends that music festivals do not require, in quotes, big acts to sell out arenas. Going as far as to praise Burning Man for being an event by the people for the people where, in quotes, the organizers just provide an open space and people go all out, end quote. Yeah, I think people like to complain a lot about commercial events, but Insomniac being a really commercial production company, they're doing right by their attendees. And I think that that's the thing that 
we sometimes forget when we see large corporations is that, no, they, they can do the right thing and they can prove that they're there for you. And I think Insomniac is doing that and they're spending all this money and they're continuing to have programming just because they know how miserable everybody is right now. They could have just said, <laughs> oh, well, like we're not, we're canceling and that's that we're keeping your money. And at the end of the day, we'll see what happens next year. But they're not doing that because they actually, I mean, as it appears, they actually care about how their attendees feel. Absolutely. And if anyone has never gone to EDC in Las Vegas, you should. (laughs) (laughs) One of the best raves on earth. All right. Next up, Burning Man documentary director hopes film will be a tribute to festival founder. The director of this new documentary about Burning Man Festival hopes that the film will serve as a tribute to co-founder Larry Harvey following his death at the age of 70. Gerald Fox traveled to the Nevada desert to follow the journey of six artists as they built huge installations for the annual event shortly after Harvey's death in 2018. The filmmaker, who won a BAFTA for his South Bank film about the artists Gilbert and George, told the PA news agency, it infused the thing with a power and emotion that I don't think it would have had otherwise because he was obviously the guiding light, the spiritual mentor of all these artists who had grown up with him and he had helped them. They wanted to give something really special back to him. You realize it's a big thing for these people because he created what out of nothing comes this huge city and it's a different kind of world than people are used to. So they have this very powerful experience. He goes on to say, in terms of the art and the creation of these structures and installations, I think we probably get the best you could ever really get. This year, it's obviously canceled and who knows for the future, but I would be surprised if the scale and intensity and emotionality of what we are able to capture will be there again for a while. So it's very interesting here because, of course, Larry Harvey is a legend and we don't often talk about the art, but we will, that is centered around Burning Man. And the fact that he was a really powerful mentor and figure in developing uh, so many artists and their expression and really giving them a canvas to come and create something absolutely unique and mind-blowingly beautiful that would take potentially sometimes years to craft and then multiple people often unpaid to help build during the festival is quite a testament to just one of his influences. And of course, you can see all about that in Burning Man, Art on Fire, the documentary. I'm really excited to see this, to know what it's all about and see that kind of first person experience on it. Personally, I really don't like sand and dust. So I probably... I'm I'm not at the right point in my life to be like, yeah, I definitely want to go to Burning Man. I think everything else about it makes me want to go. And the sand is my current deterrent. Well, you may like the multiverse then as there is a sandstorm, but it is completely virtual and will not get in, inside of you. I don't know if that's helpful at all. I will. <laughs> one, one last thing here um, that goes on is being quoted in this article says that we were on site together for 18 days. It was just a desert and us and no phone reception. It was very human. So every night we told personal stories. It gave this project the meaning that it needed. I think that's a f- fantastic example of why the Burning Man community community is so strong and why everyone needs to go out and watch this movie. Taiwan hosts their first 10,000 person arena show post COVID on August 8th. Before everybody freaks out, after eight weeks of no local transmitted cases, the government lifted some of their restrictions on their audience numbers for large gatherings. They also had heavy measures in place, providing attendees and staff with a safe environment during the whole show. Mandatory masks, temperature checks upon entry, 
physical ID cards and their names and phone numbers entered into the government website so that if a case of COVID happened, they're able to contact everybody who's been there, including staff. Look, I think that's just another example of a country and populace that's getting back to business as usual and a sense of normality. And we, we, we must look at them with envy because, uh, you know, being in North America, Canada is, is, is doing better. We're, we're entering stage four now, uh, or at least planning to, but in the United States, so many things are still up in the air. And of course, all over Europe, we're seeing people breaking rules uh, because things aren't getting back to normal fast enough. But you know, when you look at a place like Taiwan, it is an island, mind you, right? So they they, they were able to 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 lock down quite fast. They also um, only have a populace of 23 million. So, you know, when you compare that with Canada of 30 million and the United States of 300 million, uh, you can start seeing why it's some areas around the world are much more difficult to control and contain, especially when some people might argue that, you know, democracy is an Achilles heel here, but Taiwan is also a democracy. They just, they just were more disciplined and they had less people. Next up, with Burning Man cancelled, Reno's symbolic end to summer and a major cash cow is gone. Now, of course, the closest town to Burning Man uh, or city is Reno, Nevada. And of course, this has impacted all of the hotels, grocers, restaurants who do not have the economic windfall that comes with the large seven day desert festival that occurs at the end of August and early September every year. And for many, it's just a final blow after a summer without other festivals that were nearby, Art Town, Hot August Nights, um, and then, of course, the rodeo, balloon and air races and other special events that bring in tens of thousands of visitors to the region and hundreds of millions of dollars in economic stimulus. Brian Culpin, spokesman for the Reno Tahoe Airport, was quoted as saying, we've done pretty well this summer considering, but we know it won't continue. With no special events in September, we know it's going to hurt. The biggest drop off will be no burners. So Burning Man pumps tens of billions of dollars into this local economy every year. And that's thanks to more than 80,000 artists, entrepreneurs, and bohemians who travel from all over the world to attend the event in Nevada's Black Rock Desert. But of course, since the cancellation, all of that is gone. And Culpin goes on to say, we're going to miss them economically, but we're going to miss them because they're just really fun too. There's no better people watching here than during Burning Man. A new documentary, Underplayed, underscores the blatant lack of female inclusivity in the dance music industry, and it's primed for its world premiere at TIFF on September 19th, 2020. For those who don't know, TIFF is the Toronto International Film Festival in Canada. This documentary was sponsored by Bud Light Living, and it features DJs like Rez, Nervo, Alice in Wonderland, and more. Bud Light actually put out a tweet that says the world of electronic music was created to promote diversity and inclusion. Yet in 2019, only five of the world's top 100 DJs were women. I have been talking to people in my circle about this for years. The gender gap and sexism in the industry is real and festivals and labels need to step up and be more active in promoting diversity through gender identity. Shanae, of course, you've written a business plan to create your own music festival and you want to specifically, as part of your mission statement, uh, to support female artists and non-gender conforming artists as well and really give them support. 
And so I think this this really, I mean, we need to see the documentary. It is coming out in September here at the TIFF Festival for us. And I potentially will be able to find it online in some other way as well. But I think, you know, this opens a huge can of worms because we know that there's a lack of representation. We, we've we mentioned it in, in previous topics here, uh, even on this podcast, and we'll probably have a deep dive episode in our deep dives uh, as well that, that surrounds it because I think it, it bears, to, like we need to understand where this is all coming from. People are saying there's not enough women who are working hard out there to get a career in music and that's a load of bollocks. I mean, clearly that's not the case. There's plenty of ambitious musical talent out there of the female gender and the non-conforming gender. So there's this quote I want to read to you here. Uh, this is by Euphonique, uh, who is a DJ. And uh, she says, uh, there's been ups and downs dealing with the standard comments of you're wicked for a girl or you DJ like a dude, as well as seeing memes that play the women as the one that finds music a bore or doesn't get music. She goes on to say that women should be respected in the industry, but also that they should be individually strong-minded, determined, and well-rounded artists. She believes that we are on the right track, talking about female artists in general, uh, on the right track to fair and equal representation, but it is in the hands of all involved in the scene to unite for the right cause. She's quoted as saying, it's definitely getting better. Big brands have taken on board what the people have said, and you can see it reflected in their lineups and hopefully in the future labels releases too. But it's a long process. Even if they are signing women to the label now, it might be a year before they are actually released. I think there are fewer female producers coming through because of the sexism and stigma around female producers still flying about. Um, and in general, the right steps are being taken from a practical perspective, but there is still a culture shift that needs to eradicate the sexist stereotypes and create safe spaces where artists can talk and gain confidence to enter this male-dominated environment. And I think that last part, it being a male-dominated environment, is causing this problem because you have to remember that men um, are not going to go out of their way to help women take their jobs necessarily. And also that, you know, when there is a culture, especially around the music industry, the festival business, the club scene, it's really hard to infiltrate whether even you are a man or a woman. I mean, these tend to be sort of clicky environments where if you have a relationship with someone, you get the leg up. And, you know, when that is a male dominated field, then it becomes even worse because, you know, if you're a woman trying to get in, first of all, they don't take you seriously. So you're not just ridiculed by them, but potentially by the people who come to see you. You know, one DJ was quoted as really, really aggravated that she would consistently have been asked when she was waiting beside the DJ decks for the, the DJ who was playing before her to stop, people would come up and to her and ask her, oh, who, did, who are you dating? Like, who are you with? You know? Mm -hmm. And she's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm the next act. Like, I'm the, I'm the headliner. I'm playing after my opener who's now currently on the set. Uh, so I'm glad that Euphonique thinks that there's progress being made and that maybe we won't see the results of this progress until some time has passed. So perhaps we shouldn't be, where are the results? Where are the results? That kind of thing. But as we mentioned in a few other segments here on this podcast, it's clear that lineups are still coming out and they're very male dominated. Next up, make techno black again. A social experiment subverts whitewashing in clubs. So the question is being asked here via this blog called Afro Diasporas. And it asks, how did house music become so whitewashed? How did a black musical art form pioneered by black DJs during the 80s and 90s in black neighborhoods become so detached from its origins? 
In quotes, house music's co-option has followed a similar pattern to that of other black music, said Mika Salkind, author of Do You Remember House, a collection of over 60 oral interviews. Black DJs, and in particular black gay DJs, were some of the primary instigators and innovators. White DJs followed and attempted to replicate their successes. In 2014, Chicago DJ Derek Carter wrote on his Facebook page, Something that started as gay black Latino club music is now sold, shuffled, and packaged as having very little to do with either. Shanae, thoughts? Yeah, it's something that happens with a lot of cultures and a lot of things that are stemmed from different ethnicities. And I guess it's it's in its own form cultural appropriation because they've now taken something that wasn't theirs to begin with and then put a new package on it and resold it. So it's just the way that society has happened thus far. And now is the time to step up and change it. And we can make it better by just honoring the roots of the music and honoring the DJs that are trying to make their way in this world. Absolutely. Last year, the documentary Black to Techno examined the birth of techno in inner city Detroit and how white DJs from Canada and Europe whitewashed the genre. Elsewhere, Black media theorist DeForest Brown Jr. launched apparel adorned with the call to action, make techno black again. And of course, Musical acts have adopted black sounds since we can remember uh, from the Rolling Stones, in particular, adopting the sounds of blues and jazz to the Australian rapper Iggy Azalea facing criticism for adopting a black scent. So the history (laughs) is long and complex and uh, we're just uh, here in the beginning, I'm sure. To continue the discussion on diversity, the Burning Man Project has an update on their diversity and radical inclusion. So We keep talking about Burning Man in the last few weeks, and uh, here's the update. They said, you know, for a culture that preaches diversity, equality, and radical inclusion, the fact remains that the spaces within the community are predominantly white. The barrier to entry for Burning Man experiences is often dictated by privilege, and Burning Man is committed to changing this. So just as an example, you brought up that to get to Burning Man, it's a, it's a lottery in itself. And people who are underprivileged will now not get the chance. Same with other festivals who have brand loyalty. Like if you've bought six VIP tickets in the last 10 years, then you're the first to get tickets now. So there's always like this opportunity to create more open space and have things less dictated by privilege. So two months ago, Burning Man made their first public statement in solidarity to the Black Lives Matter movement fighting for racial justice. They've now made their plan to action so that their statement is more than just performative words and then can be held accountable. Some of what they plan to do is heavily internal um, and some of it's more public and easier to follow. But here's just a few things that they're going to do. They've created an internal work group for anti-racism staff advocates within the organization to advise the leadership team and support the success of the work that they want to change and implement. They've also implemented an unconscious bias and anti-racism training for staff. And they're going to be rolling that training out to volunteers as time goes on after the first year of implementing this with their regular staff. They're also holding bi-weekly internal staff discussions on race, identity, systemic racism, social justice, and other related topics so that they always have that open communication about what's going on. They're also gathering data around their representation within their paid staff so that they can assess their diversity in their leadership teams and understand 
how they can evaluate their hiring practices and leadership pathways to make sure that they continue to grow that that diversity and they don't stop where they're at. They're going to be supporting efforts to increase participation of BIPOC people in the Black Rock City through proactive community-oriented outreach and organizing resources for theme camps, art projects, volunteer teams, mutant vehicles that are committed to racial inclusion and racial equity. They're also going to be increasing their event access by making changes to their theme camps, artists, and mutant vehicle selection processes. So they're doing just different things to take steps forward. And they're also opening a communication channels through their social medias, their podcasts, everything to bring a conscious effort for BIPOC voices and storytellers. Yeah, absolutely. We are talking about Burning Man more often recently because we are in August. And of course, Burning Man occurs at the end of August, early September. And so, you know, it's 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 a very relevant topic. And uh, but I'm just going to emphasize that everything you just said supports entirely my statement, which I made a couple of episodes back that Burning Man is potentially the leader in music festival culture. And this is just another example of why, because, you know, last week we discussed the census data that they released for 2019 and 75% of the participants who came to Black Rock City identified as white or Caucasian down from 84% over the years. So there's clearly diversification happening, but still not good enough. They have to do more to make themselves accessible to Indigenous people, Black people, uh, Latino X, and all the and any other racial um, ethnicity that is not represented properly at Burning Man, because I don't think it's about where you're from. I think they're trying to create a vision for the world. I think that can be inclusive for for just about anyone, but they have begun to realize that it's going to take more than just putting tel- ten principles on your website, which people forget to read because they just want to come for the party. So. You do have to, as a festival, as an organization, as a mover of culture, you do have to implement these tools and exercise these mechanics in order to get your message out and bring people's uh, understanding in towards you. Um, so it's a call in. Okay. So I, I I love what they're doing. I'm a huge supporter of Burning Man. I couldn't speak about them enough. So I'm really happy that we're always including them in the show so far. And finally, six things about festival season we never thought we'd miss. Uh, Now, this article by Haley Thompson in the musicfestivalnews.net. She actually lists eight things, uh, but uh, we're going to go through them. Uh, Starting at number one, spending $12 on a warm beer or wine. All those hours queuing at the bar, waiting to spend your hard-earned cash on a warm cup. Oh, yes. Those are fond memories indeed. Number two, having a beer spilt on you. There's always that one idiot pushing through the crowd mid-set with a full tray of beer. I'm that idiot, and I'm not sorry, she says. Number three, losing friends and spending hours looking for them, or not. Getting lost at a festival is part of the experience. A moment of silence, please, for all the new friendships we missed out on this summer. Number four, waking up in a sweaty tent. Getting back to the tent at sunrise. Waking up around noon in a hot, uncomfortable sweat feeling like your bladder is about to burst, only to go outside and suddenly it's pissing down raining and you're shivering in a long queue for the port wearing last night's outfit and a pair of flip-flops. Oh dear. Number five, the mud. The wet mud that causes you to slip and fall on your arse. The rainy mud that ruins your favorite festival outfits. The dry mud that finds its way into your tent. 
the festival mud you still haven't cleaned off your wellies from last summer. Number six, running between stages to avoid set clashes. The only thing we miss more than complaining about festival lineups is the mad dash between stages when two of your favorite artists clash. Oh yes, that's one of my favorites. Queuing for the bar. Getting to the front of the bar queue at least six hours before with your card in hand, ready to be told it's cash only. Seriously, guys, where was the sign? And number eight, and finally, the savage come down that sets in on Monday morning. You know, you're missing festival season when you miss the come down. If there's anything we've learned during this pandemic, other than to sing happy birthday while washing our hands, it's to absolutely never take live music or festival season for granted ever again. Thank you, Haley Thompson. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. I think that um, it's a good reminder of the things that we complain about, but also the things that we're sitting here thinking, oh my God, I just wish that I could do this still. Well, thanks everyone for joining us on another week's Festival Grasp. Make sure to subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or via your chosen podcast collector, so you'll never miss us talking into your ears again. And while you're at it, if you find value in what we are discussing, rate us on Apple Podcasts. It's like telling a friend about it, but better. And it gives us a chance in that big old world out there. I know we're just getting to know each other, but come on, show us some love. We're here for you. You're here for us. So let's do this thing. To sign up as an expert guest on the show, to leave us a question or message, or to jar tip your support, follow the appropriate links in the show notes. Be sure to keep tuning in weekly for our music festival newscast and subscribe to Deep Dives, our bi-monthly in-depth topical discussion show with interviews and guests that will bring you insight and knowledge. Link in the show notes. This podcast edited by GBA Recordings. For me, Mario. And Shanae. See you next time. Bye.